Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Oncology Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Quill. Today's episode features Dr. Ryan Gensler from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Dr. Jonathan Reese from the University of California, Davis in Sacramento, California. They will be answering questions from a live meeting series on managing patients with EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer, providing their practical insights on topics including identifying patients who may benefit the most from adjuvant osimertinib, testing for EGFR mutations in early stage disease, and key ongoing trials testing strategies to improve outcomes for patients with advanced disease in both the newly diagnosed setting and after progression on current standard of care therapy with osimertinib. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Expert Think Tank, Resources to Improve the Care of Patients with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer and EGFR Mutations. For more information on the experts, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set from the meeting series, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say. Hi, my name is Ryan Gensler. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. Today, we're doing the CCO Oncology podcast. Hi, I'm Jonathan Reese. I'm a medical thoracic oncologist as well at UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center. Today, we'll be answering audience questions from an ongoing live meeting series on EGFR-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. We'll start in the setting of early stage non-small cell lung cancer and take it all the way through first-line metastatic treatment um, to what to do after progression, after first-line therapy. Ryan, I mean, what do you what do you think the ideal patient is for the use of adjuvant osimertinib based on data from the phase three Adora trial? I would consider the ideal patient someone who had an adequate surgery for for this disease with negative margins. Um, ideally, most of these patients would fall into the category of benefiting from adjuvant chemotherapy and would have received their adjuvant platinum doublet chemotherapy. Um, but if you have that activating EGFR mutation and have those other two criteria in the appropriate stage, um, we see a dramatic improvement in disease-free survival from the addition of three years of osimertinib from this trial compared to observation alone. And I think that that has clinically meaningful benefits for, for these patients. And I think even in the subgroups of the earlier stage disease patients enrolled in this trial, there seems to be a strong benefit there. So even in those 1B patients, I would think about osimertinib for these patients. Yeah, those are some great points. And I, I just want to reiterate that osimertinib has a great disease-free survival benefit, most pronounced in the stage 3A, but also present in those stage 1B with three centimeter uh, or uh, larger tumors. Adjuvant osimertinib is not a substitute for adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy in patients who are eligible and where it's appropriate, stage two, resected 3A, for example, and so forth. And so I have those discussions with patients as well. There's a great DFS benefit, but an overall survival is trending in the right direction, but but has not conclusively been shown to an overall survival benefit. We really need those updated results. I think it's important, depending on how your institution set up and how your tumor boards work and the referral patterns, that 
surgeons or others are potentially aware that just because it's less than four centimeters doesn't mean they don't need to see a medical oncologist. So I think that that's a, an important point of distinction. And I think as you talked about DFS, certainly in a early stage curable setting, I think our gold standard is really improving overall survival. Um, and we'll see what those data look like uh, over the coming years. But I think the magnitude of benefit we see with the DFS here Certainly delaying progression, delaying symptoms related to metastatic disease all have profound benefits for patients if you can push that all off three years at the very least. And uh, so, so, Ryan, what are you, considering the approval of adjuvinosumertinib based on the Adura data, what are you doing for mutation testing in early stage disease, locally advanced disease? Are, are you just doing EGFR or are you doing broad genomic profiling like we do in the metastatic setting? We have the luxury of uh, being at an academic institution where we do in-house testing for NGS, and we've been doing this for seven, eight years now. And I'd say probably five or six years ago, we adopted sort of a strategy of doing reflex testing. So as soon as a biopsy is obtained and it's felt to be a lung adenocarcinoma, our pathologists will reflexively uh, do our in-house NGS panel, which includes EGFR as well as other actionable targets. And I think in the beginning of this, when we implemented this, we debated, should we do it for only stage four? Do we do it for all stages? I think from the pathologist standpoint, that's really hard to tease out sometimes if you're getting a, a lung biopsy without the clinical context. And we felt that it was useful information even before the ADARA data that when a patient progresses, you have that information ready to go and you don't have to pull tissue and do testing or repeat a biopsy necessarily. So we have been doing that. And I think having this ADARA data available sort of reinforces what we have been doing gives us early answers. And I think you could certainly make a case to only test for EGFR in this space, since that's the only actionable targeted therapy we have in early stage disease. But I would also argue that as we see new data and new approvals for neoadjuvant immunotherapy from the Checkmate H16 trial, for example, if you have an NGS panel and, and you're testing for mutations, you may want to incorporate that into your decision making of applying immunotherapy, perhaps either in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting for these patients. So I think a broad-based testing panel has its merits and certainly EGFR at the very least. And so say we have a patient, they go on adjuvinosumertinib. Ryan, what do you suggest with regard to cardiac monitoring and so forth? What do you do? I can tell you my clinical practice, I think baseline EKG on all patients to look at QTC and then probably about two weeks after starting, recheck that EKG to, to make sure that you're not impacting the QTC negatively. And then I think the rest is sort of based on cardiac risk. I like to get a baseline echo and at least one three months later. Um, for someone who's young and healthy and has no risk factors, I don't feel as strongly about that. The risk of cardiomyopathy is is low, sort of 1% to 2%, if that. Um, so I think you could tailor your strategy and how closely you monitor based on the risk factors. If you have an older patient, um, whether they have diagnosed CAD or, or not, it may be something that you want to monitor every three to six months with the with echocardiograms, but I'd be interested to hear what, what your thoughts and your practice is on this. I follow a very similar approach. Um, I'm more concerned in patients who are older, yeah, um, yeah. you know, especially about the decreased ejection fraction. I, it's often uh, reversible, at least somewhat. Um, and so, um, I'm, as, as you mentioned, I'm more vigilant in elderly folks as opposed yeah. to younger folks with no kind of other comorbidities. And I think the adjuvant setting is perhaps a slightly different scenario. You're talking about a curative therapy, perhaps, and one where the patient may not have disease and may not need to be treated. So 
you can make a case for being a little more vigilant for monitoring this because inducing a cardiomyopathy for someone who may be cured uh, could be a much bigger deal. Whereas if you have someone with metastatic disease and they're benefiting from the drug and the EF drops 10 or 15%, it may be a little bit different um, risk tolerance there uh, based on what's going on with the patient and the risk from the cancer itself. What do you think the impact of, of neoadjuvant nivolumab plus platinum double chemotherapy, that Checkmate 816 regimen for resectable non-small cell lung cancer, what do you think that'll have on whether clinicians test for EGFR mutations in early stage disease? I think both the Checkmate 816 trial as well as the ADARA trial are, are really moving the, the needle on multidisciplinary team awareness on the importance of testing in general for biomarkers. Before either of these trials, it didn't really matter. You cut it out and you figure out the biomarkers after the surgery, and then you figure out what to do from the medical oncology perspective. But now we're starting to think about neoadjuvant approaches. We think about adjuvant-targeted therapy, and we need to pay attention to these things. Both of these trials have raised awareness to that point outside of the, the medical oncology realm or stage four disease, where we've been routinely testing this for years. I think this approval will help. Um, in terms of getting more comprehensive testing on more patients and doing it earlier on. Um, I think the challenge here is going to be logistics of who sees the patient first, who orders the testing, how quickly can you get those results? Do you need to wait for NGS testing or at least EGFR and ALK before implementing a, a neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy approach? I think certainly at our institutions where we're routinely doing this and probably sending it out fairly early. By the time you get your staging workup and PET scans and mediastinoscopies, if necessary, you, you probably have those NGS results. If you're in a community setting where everyone's in a different office and that patient comes to you later on and you're sending out and it's a three or four week turnaround, that can be perhaps a significant delay to wait for, for some of these, uh, at least tissue-based tests. Um, but certainly I think this is an opportunity also for plasma uh, testing, maybe get results a little bit faster. There's debates about that. Certainly, if it's a stage one or stage two, early stage patient, what's your false negative rate with plasma? So I think, long answer, but I think that uh, we need to be testing. We need to test more routinely. And I think on a case-by-case -case basis, bending, based on pace of disease, what workup they've had or not, whether it, you need... and certainly maybe incorporating clinical factors as to who you really need to wait uh, before implementing the Checkmate 16 strategy. In terms of molecular testing in this setting, I once again do broad genomic profiling. I don't want to put an EGFR patient on Checkmate 816, and the study excluded known EGFR mutations. And it always comes a question of you don't have that you know tumor in a bucket like you do um, in the adjuvant setting. And so you do plasma, you get a negative result. Is that a false negative, as you point out, because there's just not enough shed circulating tumor DNA in the blood because it's an earlier stage cancer? And you say you do tissue and the tissue comes back QNS. You know, do you do do you do another repeat biopsy before putting them on Checkmate 816? How much do you delay things in a curative setting in that situation? I, you know, what I've done is really kind of in those situations, you know, patients who have a heavy smoking history where you kind of exhaust those initial possibilities, known EGFR excluded, you're following the trial, giving them chemo IO. Somebody who's younger, never smoking history, I think you're kind of obligated to dig deeper. That's that's my approach. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And I think it's one of those situations where 
uh, you have a, a stage two, uh, T2N1, um, easily surgically resectable, patient wants it out, surgeon's ready to go to the OR next week, and your tissue testing just failed. It brings up issues with, is neoadjuvant going to be better than an adjuvant approach in a mutation negative patient? Do you wait? Do you go straight to surgery? I think there's a lot of a lot of questions there, and I think there's going to be a lot of debates about this at, at tumor boards. I don't know that we have a definitive right or wrong answer, but it, I think it probably emphasizes the point that uh, all of these cases should be discussed uh, prospectively uh, at a multidisciplinary tumor board and really weighing the risks and benefits of delaying treatment versus and, and getting that testing, the benefits of doing a neoadjuvant uh, approach um, on a case-by-case basis. And I think some of the points that you brought up, Jonathan, are kind of dovetail well with some of the next questions that we've been asked here in the, the first-line metastatic setting. We have a question here about if you have a patient with stage four lung cancer, newly diagnosed, uh, plasma uh, was sent, um, and the, the testing is negative. You've done testing on the tissue, and let's say that comes back quantity not sufficient. You don't have adequate uh, DNA extraction to do NGS on the tissue, and you have a negative plasma test. What do you do in that situation? Do you just move on and, and treat that patient and assume that they're they're negative based on the plasma? Do you delay treatment and, and repeat a biopsy? be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, I usually get another biopsy. If you're QNS on tissue and it's negative on circulating tumor DNA. Now, if you find something like a KRS mutation that tends to be mutually exclusive with an EGFR or ALK, you know, feel like you, you've got something there. So if you detect something that's different than an actionable oncogene driver, that's one thing. But I think I, I usually, especially for younger patients, not a big smoking history, um, adenocarcinoma, for, you know, I, I get another tissue biopsy. And so... Um, you know, I think it's important to know off the bat. There's data published now of enhanced, uh, you know, sensitivity of getting plasma and tissue. So I'm ordering both, um, you know, one for the turnaround time plasma is so much quicker generally, usually get it back in a week or so versus tissue. Um, so I'm getting both on a lot of patients, particularly patients I think may have something, but also in patients with the smoking history, you never know. I mean, 7% of current smokers have EGFR activated mutations and published data. So um, that's that's my approach that I've been doing more and more. Yeah, I, I totally agree with, with everything you said. Certainly, if you have that patient who's a negative, nev, never smoker, young, I mean, I try to get a good two biopsies, you know, Sometimes even a third, even if we're getting started with systemic treatment, if you're not convinced you got a good sample. The you know, the other strategy I would I would think about here is if you have someone who's got a heavy burden disease, highly symptomatic, and your tissue just came back QNS, set them up for a biopsy and maybe chemo uh, the day after uh, you get that biopsy, but hold off on the immunotherapy and you know, make sure you've got a good tissue sample for NGS before starting them on immunotherapy, you can introduce it in cycle two if that good tissue biopsy truly does come back negative. That's an important point because I think, you know, you, you say you give IO with chemo and you find an EGFR mutation, you know, published data rates of osimertinib causing pneumonitis after IO in that situation, you know, 30 to 40 percent. So, you know, you're once again, you're, you're kind of doing a, a disservice not to find those game changing mutations. Yeah, and not only that, but you you limit their ability to to get that drug indefinitely, yeah. right? If you, you you get a pneumonitis uh, with osimertinib, the 
package insert says to permanently discontinue. And so yeah. you, you take them yeah. off of a drug that could have given them a year and a half or longer uh, progression-free survival. Uh, so, you know, another question that's come up, you know, how do we talk to our patients about waiting for results, especially if they really want that immunotherapy? I say we want to find if we have a game-changing mutation that could really inform a different set of treatment options that are going to be more beneficial. And then the other thing I say is, you know, you have an EGFR out, Ross 1, and immunotherapy is not going to do much for you. It may even be detrimental. And, you know, what I often do, too, is I say, all right, you know, we're going to get this other biopsy. I'm going to, you know, if you feel worse, I'm putting in the chemo orders. We'll have an appointment set for you shortly after I expect to have the mutation in. So when you see me two, three weeks later to talk about the results, we're not starting this process over again. You're you're ready to go. You've got an appointment time. You know, we could always change it if we find an EGFR out, ROS1. If it's no, then I'm set with a chemo date. And I could always call and start it sooner. And I've had patients that call and I, we talk about symptoms and decide whether to do chemo. Yeah, I do the same thing, you know, if you can ballpark when that result's going to come back and you schedule them a day or two after for chemo, go ahead and start the folic acid, you know, a week before that date and, and they're ready to go. And you can just pull, put the brakes on it if you find uh, a better option when those results come back. So I think those are, are good strategies. So here's an interesting question. Well, if you have a patient who ended up getting adjuvant osimertinib per the ADORA trial uh, for early stage disease and then developed stage four disease, they completed the three years or, or came off for some other reason, and there was a gap where they weren't on the osimertinib and then progressed. How would you approach that scenario? So in full disclosure, I've not had that scenario yet where somebody has relapsed on adjuvant osimertinib, but I would get a biopsy to find out what the mechanism of resistance was. You know, start with plasma, then get tissue. Otherwise, you're looking at chemotherapy at that point. There's nothing else approved you know, in that setting. But it'll, it'll be interesting to see what the spectrum of mutations are in the setting. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a different scenario. Right? Someone who completes three years and hadn't progressed and then is off for a period of time. Obviously, no one's seen any of those patients yet, presumably. But if someone progresses while they're on osimertinib, then I think we're looking for resistance mechanisms and we're talking about the same things we talk about for someone with stage four who's progressing. I, I certainly would Think about re-challenging someone if they'd been off the drug for at least a couple of months, you know, put them back on and, and measure the disease, see what happens. That would be a reasonable approach in that setting. Jonathan, you want to talk about any clinical trials that you're aware of going on in the first line uh, space for EGFR mutant lung cancer? I mean, we could, we could always use further improvement. I mean, we're not curing these patients. There's fourth generation drugs are in development that the, um, get C797S. And, and so that'll be interesting to see how, how that works. There's four or two, adding chemotherapy to osimertinib um, first line. Will that be helpful? There's a, an ECOG trial adding bevacizumab to osimertinib. I think anti-angiogenesis agents definitely add something, but we, have, we, we, we haven't necessarily as of yet seen the overall survival benefit that may support adding, you know, an anti-angiogenesis agent to osimertinib. Or there's some interesting um, circulating tumor DNA approaches. So then to add on chemotherapy after basically checking CT DNA um, a few weeks into treatment with single agent osimertinib. And those we know from Flora and other studies, SWOG1403, uh, led by Sarah Goldberg, that um, you know that that the persistence or presence of circulating tumor DNA is a, a, a poor prognostic feature. It's kind of 
lack of benefit to osimertinib um, compared to, uh, you know, PFS wise compared to um, having clearance of your circulating tumor DNA. So adding on chemotherapy, using that as a selection biomarker or other, other type of approaches in that situation, I think are, are, are exciting avenue as well to really select out the patients who will progress early. We've seen VEGF drugs with activity across the spectrum in, in non-small cell lung cancer, but a lot of those results have been fairly modest or not translated to overall survival. We've seen benefits by adding those in terms of PFS to first line uh, or first generation EGFR uh, drugs. So there's a remdesivir plus osimertinib trial as well being run by Dr. Lee uh, through the Hoosier Cancer Research Network. I think, as you mentioned, the C797S drugs, we saw this with osimertinib, right? It was a T790M specific uh, drug, thinking that when that resistance mechanism develops, that that can be a useful agent. But if you move it to the first line, maybe prevent that T790M from emerging. Will we see the same thing with the C797S selective agents? All right. So um, assuming the patients are on osimertinib in the first line setting and, and develop progression, what if you have that, that stage four patient who is progressing on osimertinib? Let's assume you, you did some biopsies, did some testing, no, no clear targets. Um, how are you treating those patients? Yes. So, I mean, if there's, there's right now nothing FDA approved for t- really targeted therapy post-progression on osimertinib. The standard treatment is chemotherapy, but I, I get, at least start with circulating tumor DNA and often do tissue biopsies in these patients to enumerate the mechanisms of resistance, see if you could target it. You can potentially do that with MET, RET, ALK, you know, C797S, potentially go back to a first-gen drug like erlotinib or drafitinib. You know, you can get small cell transformation too. The incidence of transformation is much higher in patients who have P53 RB1 mutations. Um, so in those patients, I always get a tissue biopsy, rule out small cell transformation. But if I can't find anything, I'm looking at carboplatin pemetrexid. I, I sometimes add bevacizumab and bevacizumab eligible patients. I sometimes use Empower 150, uh, but usually after platinum pemetrexid chemotherapy and those in patients who are kind of hardier in terms of performance status-wise, where I don't have a good actionable mechanism of resistance. Um, and so Empower 150, they did show an EGFR and a subset analysis, um, pretty good response rate in PFS, but um, unclear if it improves overall survival. Um, the numbers were underpowered there. And I wanted to draw a little bit on the chemotherapy choice and immunotherapy choice. I certainly, platinum doublet plus immunotherapy is, is what we are using in patients without mutations. Is there a role for that in this setting? There's also been, uh, you know, some uh, suggestions or movements to continuing the osimertinib and doing platinum doublet chemotherapy, uh, perhaps particularly those with brain metastases. Do you do sort of all of these on a case-by-case basis? Um do you not do the osimertinib continued? That's a good point. I often do continue the osimertinib, particularly in patients with brain metastases, to help with that CNS penetration, especially if, if their progression is outside of the brain. So that's usually my standard in terms of the chemotherapy and continuing osimertinib. I don't do the Keno-189, carboplatin, pemetrexid, pembrolizumab. Patients with EGFR mutations were specifically excluded from that study. And everything we know about PD-1 not being helpful in these patients. I think there are a couple of clinical trials, you know, sort of worth noting in this in this space with chemotherapy. The 
Um, there is a trial that I think is completed accrual. Um, that's Keynote 789 trial that looked at exactly the 189 regimen in an EGFR patient population. We don't think that single-agent immunotherapy works particularly well. Um, for those that have EGFR mutations, does combining with chemotherapy change that or not? It'll be interesting to see that just to confirm what I think many of us suspect. Um, and then certainly there are other trials ongoing um, with chemotherapy right now. There's uh, Mariposa 2, which is adding chemo platinum double chemotherapy with amibantamab and lazertinib, perhaps a new agent that has shown some efficacy in the post-chemotherapy space, moving that up earlier in combination with chemotherapy. So I think the we've gotten to this point where just giving a platinum doublet alone seems less appealing, but we just don't know exactly what the best add-on is going to be. I, I personally have not used the Empower 150 regimen a whole lot, just the toxicity profile with the taxane versus pemetrexid. Um, Hasn't hasn't swayed me to use that um, based on the, the results there. Osimertinib is only for Exxon 19 and LA58R where it has an FDA approval. For the uncommon mutations, the third most common set is EGFR Exxon 20 insertions. And there's been a lot of exciting data over the past year or two targeting these uncommon mutations. Ryan, what do you do for first-line treatment before going through amivantamab and, and considering ami or mobocertinib. Before entering that real quick, I just want a, a point of clarification on uncommon mutations. I think this is important for people to recognize. There are a lot of different uncommon mutations, certainly exon 18 mutations um, and, and others. And I think it's really important that we don't lump all of those together as uncommon mutations with the EGFR exon 20. This is a specific a mutation that's very different and and perhaps less sensitive to uh, second and third generation EGFR TKIs. Um, but and sometimes it's difficult to discern when we look at NGS reports. It may not say exon twenty insertion mutation. It may say um, something different, and it, and it takes a little deciphering. So if you're in practice and and trying to figure that out, it's important to know: is this an exon twenty mutation or not? Um, but once you've identified that mutation, you know, what is the, the appropriate first-line treatment? I'm still, well, we have a clinical trial that's looking at mobocertinib in the first-line space. And so if you have a trial, access to a trial certainly makes sense here. The, the two new agents that have been approved are in a post-platinum doublet chemotherapy setting. And so I, you know, outside of a clinical trial would still stick to platinum doublet chemotherapy for this group in the first-line setting. The question that I get a lot is, um, you know, these there's some data that these folks may have a little more higher PDL one expression by and large for Exxon 20. Do you give PEMRO in these patients? I don't personally. I give CarboPEM or CarboPEM-BEV. I have not um, for the same reasons as you, but again, it's it's a data-free zone. The way I tend to think about mutations and and likelihood of response to immunotherapy comes back to smoking status, and I think that we've seen data that prevalence of smoking, you know, can enrich for response to immunotherapy as well, or prior history of smoking. But most of these patients who are getting EGFR exon 20 insertion, insertion mutations are lighter or never smokers. You know, some of these agents have risks of pneumonitis or LFT elevations or, or other things. And we've seen, at least in lung cancer, that many of these TKIs don't play nicely with immunotherapy. So now go to second one, Ryan, just be curious, how do you choose between uh, mobocertinib and amivantamab? I think it's a tough, tough choice. I think when you look 
specifically at response rates, the amivantamab data, uh, a little bit higher on response rates um, than the mobocertinib. Mobocertinib is oral. Um, you know, it's not as well tolerated as drugs like osimertinib that target EGFR. Uh, I think there's more rash, more paronychia, GI symptoms, diarrhea specifically, uh, that come along with mobocertinib. So even though it's oral, it's not necessarily an easy oral drug to take. Amivantamab has its challenges as well. It's an infusion uh, with a, a high prevalence of infusion-related reactions. Because of that, the dosing of this is the first dose is split between day one and day two, and then it's a weekly for the first four weeks, and then becomes an every two-week infusion. So I think there's logistical differences between these drugs, and that may vary patient to patient. You know, if they're just coming, have an early progression after getting platinum double chemotherapy and they're fatigued and the thought of coming to the infusion center and dealing with potential reactions is an off-putting thing to them. Maybe cycling to an oral drug and then switching back to amivantamab later may make sense if it's a good performance status and we really want to shoot for the best overall response rate in that second line setting, then I'd probably go to amivantamab. Cross-trial comparisons always have their pitfalls, but as you mentioned, amivantamab, the response rate, and, you know, things where it was maybe slightly more numerically, they're basically in the same ballpark. Ryan, I just wanted to thank you. It was a great discussion. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. It's been great. And wanted to thank CCO Oncology and wanted to thank our audience for joining us today for this discussion of frequently asked questions on the management of EGFR-positive non-small cell lung cancer. Thank you very much, Dr. Gensler and Dr. Reese, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Expert Think Tank, Resources to Improve the Care of Patients with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer and EGFR Mutations, and to download the slide set associated with this meeting series from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.